the National Archives podcast series, Lines on the Map, Negotiating International Boundaries, presented by Rose Mitchell. This talk was recorded on the 25th of November 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. Thank you, and welcome to this talk on records of international boundaries held here at the National Archives. We have here one of the largest and most important accumulations of these records in the world, and they are of interest in general because they shaped the countries that we have today, quite literally. Those researching live boundary disputes in general are advised to consult the Centre for Borders Research at Durham University for advice and training on how to conduct all angles of current research. Here we focus on historic records, which indeed document the United Kingdom's involvement in making these boundaries and in resolving boundary disputes over many centuries. So either as a colonial power in its own right or as a neutral observer or as an independent source of surveying expertise. The online research guide, simply under international boundaries research, um, that outlines the main sources held here. As map archivist, I've included in this talk quite a few maps with the different contexts in which they can appear. But of course, I'm also going to look at the main types of records and how they illustrate the process of defining a boundary. Since early times, rulers and governments have been concerned to define and protect the limits of their authority and to defend their frontiers against invasion and conquest. Hadrian's Wall is perhaps the best-known example of an early attempt to demarcate a frontier. But here we see a section of the 8th-century Offa's Dyke, which survives fairly intact near Montgomery in Wales. Boundaries were often defined verbally, a practice which often left much scope for confusion and dispute. From early modern times, Western civilization has become increasingly dependent on maps to define territory, from the scale of an individual landholding or a local jurisdiction, right up to the frontier between sovereign states. The practice of accurately surveying and mapping international boundaries didn't really become the norm until the 19th century. Indeed, many international boundaries remain in dispute today. I did hear the figure that perhaps 17% or so uh, are currently in dispute. And the records of these earlier definitions, demarcations and surveys are therefore frequently consulted. The conduct of official relations between Great Britain and other countries has always been a function of central government but I'll just fill in a little of the history. The secretaries of state for the northern and southern departments were responsible for foreign affairs until 1782, when the Foreign Office was created. The administration of most British colonies was the responsibility first of the Board of Trade and Plantations and subsequently the Colonial Office. However, the Indian subcontinent and some other territories east of Suez were separately administered by the East India Company and then by the India Office, and we don't hold their records there at the British Library. As colonies later became independent, they were dealt with by the Dominions Office and then the Commonwealth Relations Office. And since 1968, relations with all overseas territories, whatever their status, have come under the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Thus, the National Archives is one of the richest sources in this country, of, and probably in the world, of archival material relating to international boundaries. For which boundaries does the National Archives hold records? Well, British governments have played a role in the demarcation of international boundaries in a surprisingly large number of areas. There are three main reasons for this. Firstly, British colonial interests were carefully nurtured and jealously guarded. In Africa, Asia and the Americas, it became increasingly common for boundaries between British colonies and neighbouring colonies of other European powers to be defined first by treaty and then demarcated on the ground by a joint boundary commission and delineated on a record map to be preserved among the archives of both colonial powers concerned. And then, in Asia particularly, Britain was constantly on the alert for any threat to or encroachment on her empire. Crucial to this last was the existence of clearly defined and defended boundaries. 
In the 19th and early 20th centuries particularly, British surveying expertise and political impartiality were universally accepted and respected, with the result that there was frequently a British commissioner on international boundary commissions, even when Britain had no direct interest in the territories concerned. Such men were usually military surveyors, and their role was to define and demarcate the boundary in question. Definitive records of such surveys were deposited in the countries most directly affected and interested, but a certified copy was usually brought back to London by the British Commissioner and um, deposited in the archives of usually the Foreign Office. Some of the boundaries documented in the archives are um, that of England and Scotland, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Canada, the United States, we'll see a big case study on that, countries in the former Ottoman Empire, um, various African countries, um, in the Middle East, the Aqaba, Iraq, Transjordan and Syrian boundaries, in South America, particularly the Guyana-Venezuela boundary, and in Southeast Asia, uh, the Malay Peninsula, and we'll also focus on Hong Kong. There are maps, but also there's a whole range of other record types which I'll illustrate in this talk. They may be manuscript or printed. They include draft and ratified treaties, diplomatic dispatches, official reports by boundary commissioners, technical cahiers de specification and survey data, and photographs. Correspondence and confidential print of the Foreign Office, Colonial Office and Dominions Office may contain material relating to boundaries if the country to which they relate was involved in a boundary dispute. So in terms of where these records fit in the boundary making process, from the middle of the 18th century onwards, once the treaty had been ratified by the powers concerned, then a boundary commission would be established, usually consisting of military survey officers from each country, and they would fix or demarcate the precise line on the ground, um, as specified in the treaty, and they then had to produce definitive maps at a much larger scale than those in the treaty. This commission usually had considerable control over sorting out um, boundary problems which were caused by inaccurate or complete maps. But they also had to contend with clashes of personality, hostility of local tribes and animals, ill health and the weather. Um, so often um, their, their commissioners' programmes um, went slightly awry due to all these various circumstances. Here are a few tips when you're using these records. First of all, they tend to be described in the terms in which they were created. So if you're looking for Ghana before 1958, look under Gold Coast. <coughs> Spellings are often not consistent. They may be the file title um, as given. So think creatively and use wildcards when you're searching our online catalogue. And be aware that many maps are still within other documents and are not separately described. Another helpful tip is the publications of the Foreign Office librarian uh, towards the turn of the last century, Edward Hertzler, who published uh, two titles, The Map of Europe by Treaty and The Map of Africa by Treaty, which are compendiums by country listing all the treaties which were to do with boundaries for each country and also providing overview maps. So those are very useful publications to consult. Turning now to the records that we have, Starting with the early modern period, some series of state papers foreign do have international boundary material. So that's running from the 16th century up to 1782. In particular, the series of treaties for state papers foreign, SP 108, and then the papers that back those up, the negotiations, are in SP 103. A map from state papers, which is the earliest example we have which was drawn for an international boundary dispute in 1552. It shows the area between England and Scotland, and this was called the debatable land and shaded green. The map shows four straight boundary lines. This will become a feature as we go through the talk. So there was the Scottish offer, there was the English proposals, and there was a line suggested by the French ambassador to England, Claude Laval, who was the mediator in the case. 
And he explained um, that the fourth and final line, as denoted by the arrow, was that agreed by the parties. And he described it thus. It leaves the stone house of Thomas Green, Graham, Green, Graham, on its west side and leaves the stone house of Alexander Armstrong on the east. To mark this line distinctly from the others in the chart, the figure of a cross is placed at each end. So this was then actually marked out on the ground. So that's actually a very good example, considering it's so very early. I want to have a look, before we look at the main sets of records, at how boundaries can appear incidentally on records with a very different purpose. So here, for instance, are boundary beacons used on the Anglo-Dutch boundary in Borneo. And the ship HMS Rattler was there at the point in 1891 when these beacons were set up. Um, and it, so it recorded what, what it saw. You know, and this was part of the general observations, which are now found in the Hydrographic Office Coastal View series. Another example of unexpected recording of a boundary, this map was made to show overlapping French and English land grants around Lake Champlain in 1769. If we peer closely, it also happens to show the boundary between North America and Canada, as it states here. The cartouche, of course, is merely decorative, although perhaps a wolf did occasionally sit on the boundary in reality, too. So this map was sent to the Colonial Office with correspondence from the Governor of New York State. And more generally, specific international boundary material is often found among such correspondence generally issued as confidential print for circulation in official circles. And this North American boundary generated so much material that it has its own series, CO6. This is an example of a map from Colonial Office correspondence for British Columbia relating to the Alaska boundary. So here... The, this boundary line, the red boundary line, is vague in the extreme. There's no defining markers around it. Um, but it does purport to show the northern boundary between British Columbia and Russian territory in 1862. As well as maps found in correspondence, the Colonial of Office also kept some of its maps in separate map series, the main one being CO700, which is the earlier series up to 1910, then CO1047 continues up to the Second World War, roughly, and after that, CO1054. From CO700, this is from British Guiana, 22. This is part of a map relating to a long-running dispute um, in what is now the Guiana-Venezuela boundary. The first scientific study of British Guiana as it then was, and its boundaries was made in 1841 by Robert Schomburg. Um, this is part of his map, um, and it was a byproduct of his expedition into the interior of British Guiana. So this is the original manuscript map, which was the basis for many later maps of the boundary, and it shows the western limit as claimed by the governments. For this boundary, there are many other documents ranging from correspondence and treaties to arbitration atlases compiled for both sides. Another example from CO700, this time for the Gold Coast, and it shows the route taken by members of an Anglo-French boundary commission around Assigny on the Gold Coast during 1883-4. So this records their process of trying to mark out on the, on the ground um, what had been decided. The key uh, notes here the western boundary of the Gold Coast colony, the British colony, and it also notes a dotted line, which was the French claim going through the lagoon. In the interior, you can see the route the boundary commissioners took, which also has local boundaries um, and tribes and terrain noted. But then either side, there's absolutely nothing. And indeed, once you get um, off to the side where the boundary is supposed to be, the location of quite a number of places, as denoted in the key, was un undetermined, and the names of places just have a question mark. This shows some of the difficulties of, of translating um, a boundary made in Europe onto the land. Another example from CO700, um, the map of the Gulf of Guinea, 
showing the Anglo-German boundary here as a straight red line. But presumably what was indicated was an approximate location on the ground, not that the boundary really was uh, that, that, that many miles wide. But those sort of considerations do come into play um, when you're examining these kinds of boundaries. Another problem encountered with this one is that at the lower end, um, there was supposed to be, according to the agreement, um, the Rio del Rey, which is supposed to be a river. But when the commissioners got there, they found that there was no river called that. There was an estuary, which, of course, is a much wider area. So that's some of the difficulties that commissioners found when attempting to transfer the planned boundary onto the actual places in question. Turning now to CO 1047, the slightly later period, here's an example of the Kenya-Uganda boundary. There's two maps involved here, and one is really a sketch map, and it's got very thick straight lines um, running across Lake Victoria, and they land at the point where these crosses are, which um, actually, I wouldn't particularly like to have to define where that was on the, on the, on the ground. But if we then look at the right, um, this is actually apparently um, a clearer example. But these green and pink lines here are actually the new boundary lines. And that raises the question, where exactly does the boundary begin? Does it begin where the pink and green lines join or on the outer edges? So... Really, this kind of map is to give an idea of the change and what it would mean, rather than actually um, enabling one to, to work out on the ground, which would be a later stage. Colonial office maps, as well as being in um, the map series, are also, many are found, bound or filed with reports and dispatches, and some have then been extracted from those uh, dispatches and are found in map extract series. And this is an example of a map extracted from um, Cape Colony correspondence, uh, a map made in 1862, which shows, it's a manuscript map, what it shows is an area which was proposed to be um, extended, here's Natal, um, and taken to it, uh, added to it. So the map, very colourful, it shows tribal divisions and names of chiefs, and the country west of the Umzimkulu River. So that country was to be annexed to Natal, um, and you can see there's also the, the signatures appearing here. So that's an example of um, a map which has been extracted for its better preservation rather than being left folded up within correspondence. Moving beyond maps, of course, we do hold many photographs of the colonies, which include those for international boundaries. There's a large series of colonial office photograph albums in the series CO 1069, which have been mounted on Flickr, so they're available there. They document many aspects of colonial life, including boundaries, and the examples I've shown here are from the Hong Kong, the Hong Kong boundary taken in 1898 and the Gold Coast survey in 1890. Moving later into time, uh, beyond the colonial office, um, Dominion's office records with the letter code DO mainly relate to what then became self-governing dominions, so principally Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, also South Africa and various Western Pacific territories. So with all of these, if you're researching a place, you need to think what is its status at a particular time. And the example I have, which is quite late for the period, but found from uh, the main Dominion's Office correspondence series, is actually of Antarctica. And it shows how, by the 1950s, seven countries, including the United Kingdom, had actually made claims in an Antarctica. There's a key below the map which, which shows what these claims are. But among the boundaries between the countries runs a blue squiggly line, which is the ice front, which overrules all of these territorial claims. And then an agreement in 1953 froze any claims to make Antarctica a dispute-free zone. 
So having looked at the colonial office records, Dominion's office records, we move now to the foreign office records. And again, here are some, some useful tips for the researcher. So the foreign office usually designated boundaries alphabetically. So usually it's the Argentine-Chile boundary, not the Chile-Argentine boundary. But Turkey was the big exception. So any boundaries with Turkey um, have Turco at the front, so Turco-Greek, Turco-Persian, etc. But then boundaries between British and other powers colonies were defined by the names of the colonial powers. So instead of Kenya Tang Tanganyika, it's Anglo-German. We'll see some examples, and uh, here, here's one. So the Sierra Le Leone boundaries in 1894. So looking at Foreign Office records before 1906, which is their administrative um, date, watershed, records in that period are mostly arranged by the name of the country concerned and international boundaries being important matters, most series of original correspondence and confidential print contain material about them. Also, the archives of British embassies and consulates among the records of the Foreign Office, where the country concerned had a boundary dispute, may also contain um, boundary records too. So here's an example um, of a map from Foreign Office correspondence this is the area now in Serbia and Mont Montenegro from correspondence for the Ottoman Empire. That was how it was filed in the Foreign Office. The Montenegro Boundary Commission, which was set up in 1858, represented Austria, France, Prussia, Russia and Turkey. And the British Commissioner, so it was the neutral party, um, was Major Francis Cox Royal Engineers, who signed this map which was drawn by his lieutenant, who has the wonderful name of, it's actually Honorius Horatio Sitwell. So this is a manuscript map, which was then lithographed and included with the Cahier de Specification. These are filed in the Foreign Office map series. Um, but what this official document does, it gives techni technical information about the boundary running from point to point, uh, naming those present at the fixing of boundary markers. So it's a technical record of the process of fixing the boundary. Another map extracted from Foreign Office correspondence, this time for Abyssinia in 1901. The, here the red area was in dispute. Um, it's actually quite difficult to make out, I think, these lines So um, on, on the map. Um, because they're actually dark colours, they seem to rather run into each other, even on the actual, actual map. So that is rather a problem. Then there's a file that goes with it, and excerpts from the file point to some of the issues faced by the boundary commissioners. So the top excerpt reads, The disadvantages to both governments in common is the existence of an ill-defined and unreasonable frontier which must inevitably give rise to constant complaints from both sides. The second excerpt mentions, um, at the bottom it mentions that this sketch map is actually annexed, but it also gives the opinion of the Commissioner Sir John R. Dar that the Italian claim was unreasonable. Now this is the kind of information and opinion that you would get in the correspondence, but of course wouldn't make its way through to um, the actual treaty correspondence. In the third excerpt, it explains that the frontier was to be drawn on a line from Tormat to Todluk. But when the commissioners went to Todluk, they had the problem of where exactly to start the line. And um, there's a description of how they, they compromised because of the location of a well that needed to be included on the Italian side. So this is the kind of detail that they had control over to change when they actually got to the ground to take into account local conditions. Also from the same file is this lithographed map, but it is um, an unrevised proof with a number of um, manuscript editions. So it's a lithograph which was made in the Intelligence Division of the War Office, which a lot of boundary commissioners being military people and also, in a sense, a lot of the information being in military intelligence, if you like, um, this is where the maps would go on to be, to be lithographed. 
It's also marked confidential at the top, um, and there's a key um, and this red detail, which shows that there were at least three different proposals for the boundary at this stage, which are actually quite hard to disentangle um, without a magnifying glass on the map. So there are, you can get different stages of, of the mapping being translated towards, um, in many cases, a final map which was agreed. Turning to Foreign Office records after 1906, um, there's a series of treaty department correspondence in FO372, which contains a lot of material. Also, the African department, um, FO367, has quite a bit of material up until 1913, when everything goes into the political department's general correspondence, which is a huge series, and it has very much international material in it. Perhaps the most uh, famous map associated with FO371 is this map signed by Marc Sykes and Francois-Georges Picot. So this shows the basis of their proposed secret agreement to establish British and French spheres of influence in the Middle East, supposing the defeat of the Ottoman Empire in the First World War. And for more about this, since so much has been already been written about it, see the book Lines in the Sand by James Bath, among other books on this. We've also got um, at least one other version among War Office records. I expect there's probably more too. So that's an example from Foreign Office correspondence. Important material, manuscript material, was printed um, for wider circulation in government circles. Um, and of course, international boundary material nearly always qualified under this heading. So this is papers for distribution in government offices. So if it came in from the colonial office, it might be circulated also um, in those circles and, and perhaps more widely. All sorts of dispatches and reports and the maps that went with them could be printed up. The main series for these uh, numerically is FO881 and there's also various other series, but that's the main series. And as we'll see when we come to the example, they're a lot easier to read than the original handwriting you know, written out in, in, in the country concerned. The main series of treaties is FO93 with a huge date range there. So many, many treaties contain maps which show the general envisaged boundary um, that was drawn on the map during negotiations but before actual detailed demarcation on the ground. And the treaties can have, they can be at the stage where they're, they're just agreed or there can be other materials with them. Sometimes they've got um, details of the actual demarcation as well. They're, they vary quite a lot. I've got some examples here. So this document holds the agreement made in 1895 between Great Britain and Russia relative to the delimitation of the Russo-Afghan boundary through the Pamirs which are shown very graphically in this, um, in this uh, brown here. And the map is also signed by the, the commissioners. Ah, up here. Yep. If we look at a detail of it, um, we can see that uh, the line actually has, in Roman numerals, the boundary pillars marked there. And the detail shows just how mountainous it was and how hard it is to make out these Roman numerals um, amongst all this detail on, on, the, on, the, on the map. Also in, in this particular file, there's a list of all the boundary pillars, and this is in English, Russian, and French. So it gives their latitudes and longitudes, so an exact... Um, the exact co uh, information which goes with each one on the map. So here we saw five on the map. This is uh, four and five, the boundary pillars. It, it says exactly where they were. So boundaries don't have to be on land. There are many maritime boundaries. And this is an example of a map which accompanies a relatively recently accession treaty to show delimitation of the continental shelf between the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland in 1988. 
And for more about this, there's a, a blog on our website um, by Andrew James, which goes into more documents and more details. But I thought I'd just put this one on, because in a sense, that line which zigzags across the sea may look quite haphazard to us. But then it's also accompanied by this table, which gives the latitudes and longitudes of each of those corners of the zigzag. So it's actually a lot more precise than it appears to be. And of course, maritime boundaries can be hotly contended because of the potential economic importance of what lies under the sea in the form of mineral resources such as oil and gas. The Foreign Office also gathered up um, particular cases which um, there was a lot of material for and they were called cases, particularly relating, uh, relating to boundaries, but also to other important diplomatic matters. Um, and these particularly include a number of papers about boundaries in the former, former Ottoman Empire, um, and particularly the boundary between the United States and Canada, which we're going to have um, a look at as a bit of a case, case study. So here is a map of the Lake of the Woods area in North America. Now, the boundary between the United States and Canada is hugely long, so this is just a, um, a part of it. And this is one of very many documents which span decades. This is from FO302, which contains the records of the Northwest Boundary Commission, which made this map and set out to delimit this particular bit of the boundary between 1872 and 1876. So there's a, a, a bigger detail about the actual boundary going up here and, and actually leaving out a corner here because of the, the, the vagaries of boundary making, etc. But as well as maps, we also have a photograph album which shows us just how, how hard work it was uh, cutting literally with an axe uh, a line through the forest because that's where the boundary said um, it had to go. It was due to be on the 49th parallel, um, latitude 59 degrees north. Um, so that was regardless of what it met in the way, major features or vegetation. So you just had to get out your axe or preferably find someone else to get out their axe um, and chop down these enormous trees. So that gives us an idea of just some of the hard graft that could be in involved in, in making a boundary. And there are other photographs. Um, here's one of the officers on, as it says down here, Her Majesty's North American Boundary Commission. And I would say they're probably at rest at this point. Um, there's several dogs. Um, there's this gentleman dressed for, dressed for riding. They look as though, well, if they've been out working hard all day, they're, they're definitely resting up now, I think. And contrast that with the, the sappers who are hard at work making a boundary mound here. Um, we'll see several other boundary markers, but um, if you're actually going to make a boundary, you've got to leave some physical um, reminder to people of where it is. So this is just one sort of boundary, depending on what kind of terrain you found. You tried to use the local materials that were there. Um, but uh, yes, that's that kind of gives a human face to the idea of boundary making. Other records of the Commission include an atlas which was produced jointly by both sides and the maps were lithographed and then they were sold to the general public in a bound volume here. So that's the title page of the atlas from the Foreign Office Map Library series FO925 and it includes this rather lovely um, picture of a peak which was called Mountain of the Chief by the local Blackfeet um, and is now in Glacier National Park in Montana. But here's one of the sheets inside the atlas, um, one of the maps printed up, which shows the boundary as established by the, the Joint Commission. So it was their officially agreed record of their work. And it shows just what difficult terrain um, boundaries may, may encounter. 
Other boundary commissions for which we've got records in particular series include Eastern Rumelia in F0901, Argentina Chile in F0928, and we'll see an earlier um, record, Anglo-Egyptian Sudan in F0867, and that's got papers on the Darfur Wadi boundary. And there's a miscellanea, everyone always has to have a miscellanea, don't they, in FO96, which has some rather important um, material in it relating to the northwest frontier of India, the Serbian Boundary Commission, and uh, one of the North American Boundary Commissions, an earlier one. And here are some photographs from the Argentine-Chile boundary, which give an idea about boundary making. So here, this says this is the place where the bear bearings are taken from, so you can see the party hard at work. And here are two different types of the, the, the boundary pillars set up, um, one a metal one um, with the gentleman on top of it, and, and beneath one made of local stone. So again, showing how in some cases they had to import something, um, but in, in many cases they actually used what was, what was lying around. So after World War I, there was a major change of boundaries, a redrawing of boundaries, and we do have some records of that, um, particularly many files in FO608 which relate to particular boundary changes, um, both in Europe and particularly in Africa. And also we've got the handbooks prepared by the Foreign Office for use at the Peace Conference in FO373, and they also have quite a few maps um, to be used when considering what decisions should be made about boundaries at the war's end. After World War II, of course, there was also another major redrawing of boundaries, um, and one particular series that might be of interest is that for the British element of the Control Commission for Germany in FO 1049, which does have maps um, of boundaries between the British occupation zone and neighbouring countries and of interzonal boundaries, those of other victorious powers. Foreign Office maps and plans, like the Colonial Office, the Foreign Office had a map library, a main place um, where it collected up maps and plans, which didn't mean it didn't put them elsewhere. FO925 is, is the main series here, with a very long date run, and it has many boundaries um, maps. and. They can be for boundaries where Britain had a role and also particularly where they didn't. So an example from FO925, here we are in South Africa again. This is 1885 and this relates back to that manuscript map that I showed you from the Colonial Office correspondence where we have um, the river, the Umzimkulu right up, right up at the top here. So that's the um, eastern boundary of the map that we saw with this area, but this actually shows a much wider area, and it's really a simplified depiction of really quite complex boundaries. And the colouring is used to show, um, it, this is Griqualand, Pondoland and Natal, but the colours show um, areas which are under Her Majesty's rule, which are these in, in pink, and then those of Her Majesty's allies, which are in, in green, um, and there are a few other um, lands which were seeded. So that's an example of the type of map, um, a printed map, which appears in FO925. Other Foreign Office maps and plans, as in the Colonial Office, not in the big map series, are bound still with their, their reports and dispatches, etc., or have been extracted from them into these extract series. And we have an example of the Anglo-Portuguese boundary in correspondence from consuls. So the consul here was the British consul, Mr. Sharp, um, and these are his letters from 1900. So the boundary in question, which here is just called the Anglo-Portuguese boundary, is that on the border of present-day Malawi and Mozambique. And in his correspondence, Mr Sharp lays out a written definition of the boundary, and particularly where the beacons were laid. Um, at the top, um, he notes um, amongst many trees, there's a Mbawa tree, which is 
boundary beacon number one. And just below, um, there's another tree here, which is a growing palm tree. Was that really a very good idea for a boundary marker? One wonders. And then the third extract here notes the kind of obstacles that the boundary commissioner could face. So here there's um, smoke from grass fires, which meant that he couldn't see anything to fix his, his, uh, his boundary view there. Um, and he had to wait until they'd subsided before he could do any work. And the last one here records another type of danger encountered by boundary commissioners in Africa anyway, um, which mentions elephants um, undoubtedly um, being seen about um, during the rainy season. So I don't know if he could change his schedule to avoid them. Um, but also lions being heard at night. So these are just some of the uh, hazards faced by boundary commissioners. Moving on to the later period, Foreign and Commonwealth Office records include some particular series uh, with, with boundary material. Um, FCO3 has got draft ratifications of treaties. The Chile-Argentina boundary features yet again in FCO7. FCO8 has Middle Eastern boundaries. And the German boundaries are in FCO33. There's an awful lot more. And of course, this is a series, um, this is a letter code which is still accruing. Records are still being created and transferred. That's the Colonial Office, Dominion's Office, and Foreign Office. Um, I'll just mention some other places that have got boundary material. The War Office, as I've said, um, furnished many of the, the military uh, commissioners who worked on the boundaries. Um, and some of the relevant series are WO33, which has got printed papers which are comparable to the confidential print that we've seen for the Foreign Office and the Colonial Office. And the really big series of maps and plans in WO78 with a very, very long date range, um, which has got a lot of maps of international boundaries, particularly where there was a British military surveyor who was a commissioner, um, so where particularly where Britain played a role. Other series are the Directorate of Military Operations and Intelligence series in WO10-106, uh, which has got some 90, late 19th, early 20th century material, and particularly the Directorate of Military Survey papers in WO181, which has the records of the Geographical Section General Staff, um, which was the main um, map-making body um, for this directorate, relating to boundary surveys, particularly in British colonies, and I have an example of a recently accessioned um, series, WO408. This shows some of the nitty-gritty, if you like, military survey compilation material, which is the kind of thing that you may well find um, amongst these, these records. Um, so this is the Rhodesia-Congo boundary, but it, it, it actually gives you some idea of the map-making process there. So those are the major sets of records for in international boundaries research. But there are lots of other places you could look as well. So Admiralty and Treasury records and Cabinet minutes and memoranda, which contain obviously many maps of international boundaries, usually printed at a small scale um, for use at briefing and meetings um, and to provide background information to ministers. There are also private papers and, um, in fact, the public papers of some prominent figures who were involved in, in, in international boundary making usually um, politicians or military men. So there's uh, John Ardar and Field Marshal Simmons, who have their papers have got a lot of material on the Turco-Greek frontier, and um, Threadwood Gray's papers um, have got material about the Aqaba boundary. So you might find material um, almost anywhere, really. So um, good hunting. And as I say, I found some examples at the beginning from the um, Admiralty Coastal View series and also while I was looking at the, um, the Lake Champlain map. So who knows what you might find. Just to return to new accessions to say really that um, because records are coming in all the time, I mean, those selected for permanent preservation generally um, arrive here when they're 30 years old, a period which is going down. Um, but of course, international boundary material it's very likely to be selected 
And these new files are often released in the New Year's openings on the 1st of January, but may now become available at other points in the year. So if you're doing research, it's best to try a new search from time to time to make sure that you've found relevant newly released material. I'm going to finish with a, a few more case studies. So looking at the variety of material uh, for one particular place. So starting with Hong Kong, this is the map which is part of the 1898 treaty in FO993, by which the United Kingdom was granted a 99-year lease of an area called the New Territories, which was a really large extension of the old existing colony. Um, so this map has got place names in, in English and in Chinese, and it's also got this dotted line, which is the boundary of the New Territories. So it's a small-scale map, there's not much detail, and then after this, a ground survey would be needed to fill in the exact um, location. Now, this boundary appears in a lot of the Colonial Office photograph albums. Um, so, first of all, we've got um, pictures of the commissioners here posing, um, and then actually in action, as we saw before, um, fixing the first boundary pillar of, of the boundary, um, at Starling Inlet, um, we're told here. Moving on to more detail about the boundary, these photographs really show us, I mean, here we've got uh, the line, you can see the fence going right down to the shore, which was erected, a very tall fence, which is shown in detail here in this picture of a customs post, which was set up on the border. And that's a reminder, too, of all the paraphernalia that uh, a new boundary often requires. My last case study is a series of records connected with the Nyasa-Tanganyika boundary in 1898. This is now Malawi-Tanzania. And this is an example from Foreign Office Confidential Print, which is much easier to read than the original correspondence in manuscript. This report was made by Captain Charles Close, a royal engineer who later became head of military survey and of the civilian ordnance survey. So very experienced mapmaker and of the South African maps used in the South African wars where he also served, Close said that they were printed on such high quality paper that they were used by the men to line their jackets to keep out the cold veldt wind. Here he, he goes into equally, equally um, storytelling um, where he gives in, in these excerpts, in the top one, he relates how the boundary mostly followed natural features but how the natives readily understand that, on the bottom here, if a village is on a stream flowing south, it is British, but if it's flowing north, then it's German. So this gives a sense of you know, how boundaries were understood on the ground. In the second um, excerpt here, he really gives us his comments on the German maps, which he said were full of sketchy work, and he gives quite a few other criticisms of them, um, but comes to the conclusion that because they agreed with his, they were probably all right. And I think this is quite telling, this particular quote, which, where he says, his impression of the boundary zone is that it is worthless a piece of country as any in Africa, but as a road into the heart of the continent, it deserves a certain amount of attention. And then in this last expert, he's actually telling a story of how one of the party went off in a dinghy um, and made a survey of the river Songway, which is an important point we'll come to in a minute, where he met a cow hippopotamus and lived to tell the tale. And close comments that the commission considers, right at the end here, that it's improbable that the river will change its course. The Colonial Office photograph albums also contain a whole set on this boundary. Um, there's a list of the photographs with a letter from Close. And here's one of the boundary markers um, which has been erected there, which looks like a tree without the leaves on it. There's also a human depiction here of the British party, and I think this is probably Close himself, 
and also the main German boundary commissioner, Captain Hermann, here with his tent and his flag. And here is Captain Hermann's finished lithographed map as appended to the final treaty made in 1901 and appears on the Foreign Office treaty file, where, of course, it's filed under Germany. Moving beyond that 1898 to 1901 period and returning to the Songwei River, a file in OD6, which is the Directorate of Overseas Surveys um, series of files, notes how really many boundary problems continued once former colonies gained independence. And this particular one um, was creating a lot of problems here. I mean, the comment, which was from Alastair MacDonald, basically um, comments on the new survey that was proposing new boundaries. It says, your boundary divides nations, desks, and Directorate of Overseas Surveys, filing systems, and seems to cause confusion in all three areas. And he notes how farmers' lands were divided up either side of the river and raises the question as to whether they're going to be given canoes to go from one side of their land to another. So uh, the boundary problems can, can continue and uh, rivers don't always stay put. Here's Lord Curzon, Viceroy of India from 1898 to 1905, British Foreign Secretary 1919 to 1924, and he famously said in a lecture in 1907, Frontiers are indeed the razor's edge on which hang suspended the issues of war or peace and the life of nations. And he continued by saying that the integrity of her borders is the condition of existence of the state. As time has passed, archives in many countries have been destroyed by war, natural disasters or major changes in governments. As a result, documents now in the National Archives are invaluable not only for their evidence of British involvement in boundaries in which Britain had an interest or in which British commi commissioners acted as neutral observers, but they often constitute the sole surviving record of earlier boundary surveys in other places too. Thus, they're still used today in the course of diplomacy and negotiation for the peaceful resolution of boundary disputes. That brings to an end this tour of lines across mountains, sand, water and ice, forests and plains. Thank you. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. 